And you might be turning in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, the 26th chapter of the book of Matthew. Consider with you the subject of the cup. Matthew, the 26th chapter. I'm reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, through our text. We'll start at verse 36, Matthew chapter 26. I requested that song that we sang a moment ago, <clears throat> Free Salvation. That song ought to be the theme song of Primitive Baptist because it really expresses in just a few words all that in what we believe about salvation. Salvation is the product of God's eternal wisdom and plan for by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit agreed in eternal covenant to redeem his elect people and bring them to the knowledge of Christ and to give them eternal life. And uh, that song expresses it in very few words and very good words. And what we'll read tonight uh, is based upon that very promise and that plan. So Matthew, the 26th chapter, and beginning our reading at verse 36. Now, the setting is in the upper room. The Passover has been observed by the Lord and all 12 of the apostles. There seems to have been a dispute, my understanding, and of course the understanding of some others, and we differ about this sometimes, the order but the ones who are right are those who agree with me. <clears throat> uh, the, there is a dispute going on, and this proves that there are Baptist preachers. Which ones are the greatest? <clears throat> and, um, of course, it's kind of brought about by their mothers, their mother, you know, which one was sitting on the right hand, one sat on the left hand. That's, that's a good mother, and she wants to, you know, her children to be promoted. And uh, so while this dispute has been going on, it needs to be consummated. You know, a lot of times we Christians have little minor disputes that grow, fester things, and uh, we need to really just take them to the Lord and deal with them, with each other. Uh, if you have a gift offering, you remember that your brother has ought against you. First go be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift to the Lord. <clears throat> so the Lord gets up from the table. And girds himself with an apron. Apron is very significant. It's a symbol of a servant. And he gets up from the table, takes a basin of water, and goes around and washes all the feet of all 12 men. Uh, of course, Peter makes an objection, being Peter, you know, not so, Lord. Uh, you have, if I wash not your feet, you have no part with me. That's not talking about his salvation. It's talking about his fellowship relationship. And so, again, Simon Peter, not just my feet, Lord, all over there. And, <clears throat> calm down, Peter. <clears throat> Those who have been bathed don't need to be washed again. Uh, you're all clean except for one. And you, all you need is, you know, your feet washed and your hands washed occasionally. But anyway, and so he washes all the feet, goes back and sits down and says, what I've done for you, you don't understand maybe, but... 
If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. He sets forth a principle. The servant is not greater than his master. The Lord took the act of the lowest of servants. You only read about this one time in the, the Bible. And that was when David was taking a wife and her name right at the moment skips my mind. And she said, I'm not worthy to be a wife to my, to my master. Let me be the servant that worships the servant's feet. And I believe that's in First Samuel. We'll get to it sometime later on. I always like to leave part out of a sermon so I can come back next time and finish part of it. That's a young, that's a trick, Nathan, you can learn. You'll start a 10-series sermon always when you come to. And, uh, and then he says, one of you will betray me. The Lord knew all what was going on. That's part of God's eternal plan. Nothing takes the Lord by surprise. And uh, so they say to me, you know, which one, which one is it? And nobody suspects Judas because, you know, he'd been part of the crowd and done everything. They trusted him because he was the treasure. Sometimes people think that that's an implication of treasures, but it meant that they, they really trusted him. Uh, and one of them says, uh, who is it, Lord? And the Lord said, it's the one to whom I give sub to. Now, they were not sitting in chairs, you know, like we think, and we see the picture of the Last Supper. That's not the way they were seated. They were reclining on a couch on one arm. Couch went around kind of like a U-shaped table. And so they were very close to each other. And so he says to St. Judas, what thou doest, do quickly. And he dismissed Judas. They didn't know what he, why the Lord dismissed him. Uh, some thought he had been dismissed to go take care of some things, get some more uh, items for the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was coming up shortly. And, but he had a devilish, literally devilish errand to do. He was going to betray the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. As often you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, not literally his body, not literally his blood, because he was still alive. But it represented that which he would have us to do to remember him. Remember how much he loved us. And remember our salvation. And then according to my understanding, we have the 15th. Of course, that was in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. And then you have the 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th chapters of the Gospel of John. And you'll find in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John the conclusion of what goes on there in that upper room. In the 18th chapter in verse 1. It reads like this. If I can find it here. When Jesus had spoken these words, that's everything, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th, which is that great prayer in the 17th chapter of John, that high priestly prayer. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out. They went out across the brook of Kidron. I've been privileged to be in Israel, Ruth and I, and uh, I was amazed at how 
close everything was. I kind of thought it was spread out a lot, maybe like Texas, you know, but not so. It's more about the size of New Jersey. And uh, <clears throat> Bethlehem is only about 10 or 12 miles down the road from Jerusalem. Mount of Olives is not way off out there. Uh, it's just across the brook, down a little slope of a bank, up another little bank, and that's the Mount of Olives. On across the Mount of Olives is Bethany. If you go straight over the mountain to Bethany from Jerusalem, it's about a mile. If you go around the Mount of Olives for the road, it's about a mile and a half. The Garden of Gethsemane is on the western slope of Mount of Olives. It's not a big flowery garden. It's just where some olive trees are growing. And it's called Gethsemane because that's the word means a wine press, olive press maybe. And the so chapter 18 of the Gospel of John says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth his disciples over the brook of Kidron, where was a garden or an olive grove, into which he entered and his disciples. Now back to the 26th chapter of Matthew. Matthew 26 and verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them into the place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. I like that word. That proves our Lord was a southern man because he used that good word. Good old southern word. I'm going over yonder. <clears throat> well, I looked it up in the Greek, literal, in the Greek, and it's there. I thought maybe the translators just put it in there, but that word is there in the, in the Greek. I'm going over yonder. And he took with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful. Began to be initiating. This is starting. To be sorrowful and with very heavy. And in the Greek, those words are combined together, which means that he became exceedingly heavily sorrowful. Then said he unto them, My soul. This proves that our Lord was very human. He is the God man, and he is body, soul, and spirit. And so, my soul, he says, when your soul is affected by something that's really deep. Mash your finger, uh, get a toothache, but a soul ache is anguish. My soul is exceedingly, exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tear you here and watch with me. Be on guard. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as thou will. And he cometh into the, to his disciples and spite of them asleep and said to them, them <clears throat> Peter, what could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptations or to trials and testings or hardships. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We all can understand that. And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, it, if it is possible, may not, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Notice a little change in the wording. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, late at night. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and said to them, Sleep on now. Note, would you, 
rather than being critical, rebuking them, our loving Savior is sympathizing. Sleep on then, now, take thy rest. Behold, the hours come. <clears throat> the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be gone. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Our Lord knew all what was going on, all the circumstances. He knew Judas was close by. Now in the book of Mark, the 14th chapter, we'll read about the same episode, only reading as the Holy Spirit gives Mark explanation for it. 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and we'll begin our reading here at verse <clears throat> uh, 20, 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. And he take with them Peter, James, and John, and began to be sore amazed. These words here in the Greek mean startled almost. Shocked. To be heavy and to be heavy. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he take with him Peter, and, and he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. And he went a little farther in verse 35 and fell on the ground and prayed. One, the gospel counts is he fell on his knees. Another is he fell on his face. He fell on his knees probably and in his praying as he continues to pray, he falls prostrate on his face and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, a little different from what you, Matthew gives us, Mark gives us. Uh, not that they are contradictory, but Matt, Luke is the, the physician. And as a doctor, Dr. Jeffries, uh, as a doctor, he is more concerned about details. And the Holy Spirit gives him every word that he is writing here. Abba, Father, dear Father. That's a more loving, loving term. My dear Father, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thy will. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Be on guard all the time. That's for all of us at all the time. Not just for these three men here. That's for all of us at all times. Be vigilant. Be sober. For your adversary, the devil, goeth about the drawing line, seeking whom he may devour. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready or willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. Note that we have the same account. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and neither wished they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time and said to them, Sleep on, sleep on, and take your rest. Take your rest. Long night is in front of you. They didn't understand it. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed on the hand of sinners. Rise up. Let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me 
is at hand. Three accounts that you might get all three of the record of what happens here. In this accounts, you find the Savior, Jesus Christ, praying a prayer that needs to be understood properly. If it be thy will, this cup pass from me. Now, as God, and he is the God-man, as God, he was part of the eternal counsel by which all these things were planned, by which also he agreed to. It is not that in any way that he is trying to back out or go away from or depart from what the eternal counsel had planned which he was party to. But it's right the opposite. What's going on? Well, <clears throat> go with me please back over to the book of Matthew here and about chapter, <clears throat> get it to you just a second, chapter <clears throat> 20. Chapter 20 and verse 22. And I want to point out something to you. Something that has come to my understanding a little bit clearer. But Jesus answered and said, you know what you asked. This is again the, the mother of, of, of the Zebedee's children is asking that he might sit on the left hand and right hand. And he answers, you don't, you don't know what you're asking for. Uh, in verse 22, you know what you really ask. Are you able, now note this, to drink of the cup that I drink and to be baptized? Now, my understanding previously has always been that those two were synonymous. Same thing. But now, I'll raise a question. To drink of the cup and to be baptized. There's two different actions here. To drink of a cup and to be immersed. Immersed. In the judgment of God, the wrath of God. But drink of the cup, what is that? But sit on my right hand and on my left hand, how can I give you? You have also in the Gospel of Mark and the 22nd chapter also of Luke, similar expression. And I'll note in both all these, these, these two words are separated out. The cup and the baptism. In verse 42 here of the 22nd chapter of Matthew. Father, if it be thy, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. It's the cup. It's not the baptism. What's going on? Our Lord is exceedingly sorrowful. He is the God-man. As the God, he was part of the eternal covenant that orchestrated, controlled, and predestinated all things that are going on here in time. But as man, fully man, there is something else going on. This is what God would have us to understand. There is a conflict going on here, I believe. And that conflict would be announced and told to us back over the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, and verse 15. The lair in the Garden of Eden. When, the Lord, when Satan had deceived Adam and Eve and they had sinned, and the Lord came into the gardens and said, where, Adam, where art thou? And Adam blames God and says, the woman thou gavest me. Of course, that proves that Adam was depraved. And that you ladies, whenever your husband starts blaming you, say, you're acting exactly like Adam. Um, and the Lord says in verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed, the serpent's seed, and her seed. And you have it in the King James it, but it is actually the max, 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 masculine and he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. 
Two actions. One, heel is being bruised and the head is being bruised. More fatal blow to the head. But a heel wound. Satan is going to bruise his heel. Now all through history, Satan has tried to thwart the plan of God and the program of God to bring about the salvation of God's elect people. Now, Satan is wise, but not all wise. And he is powerful, but not all powerful. And so he has tried, but he has continually failed. You remember that when our Lord was born, that Herod had all the children under two years younger killed, all the male children down at Bethlehem killed? Why? Who inspired him to do that? Well, it was Satan trying to keep our Lord from... And then in the life of our Lord himself, they tried at one time to push him off a cliff and he simply passed through them. Storms came up while he was on the sea of Galilee. That storm has somewhat of a demonic origin to it. A strong storm. Even the mariners were afraid. They thought they were going to perish. Satan was always working all throughout the history of, the, of mankind to prevent our Lord from being born Prevent our Lord from going to the cross of God fulfilling his purpose and plan. Now, there's an interesting verse of scripture over in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or chapter 2 rather. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> Paul is writing, speaking, of course, writing to the church at Corinth. <clears throat> he says, <clears throat> verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are mature, yet not the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of God. Not We're not trying to get a, DD, a master's degree or a doctor's degree. We're wisdom of this world. Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world. Now, he, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul will talk about the principality of the air. And, and he talks about those principalities in which we war against. These are not flesh and blood, but they're spiritual beings that are opposed to God's program and God's people. And they are working, trying to thwart God in the lives of God's people. Nor the princes of this world that come to naught. Comes to naught. <laughs> Psalms chapter 2. God shall laugh and have them in derision. The world plans and plots and there's all kinds of conspiracies going on. Don't worry about all that, those conspiracy theories. God's in control. And they accomplish his, he, working his things by his will. But verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Our glory, his glory, but also with him, our glory also. What God is working out in time is to his glory and for the glory of his people. That is the very purpose and the understanding of a Romans 8.28. He worketh all things for good. Not for your temporal good. But for your spiritual good. And to his glory. Now verse six, 8. Which none of the princes of this world knew. Now he's not talking about just political rulers. He's talking about spiritual rulers I believe. For had they known it. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You know, the amazing thing is Satan plots and schemes, but all the while he is simply working out God's purpose and plan. Peter, speaking in Acts chapter 2, said, 
speaking to the nation of Israel and to the people on the day of Pentecost, he says, Him being delivered by the determined counsel of the Lord of God, ye have taken and with wicked hands have crucified the Lord of glory. All that wicked men did was to accomplish the will of God and the plan of God and the salvation of God's elect people by putting to death our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It was ordained by God that he should die a particular way. That was by hanging on a tree. And that's what the Jewish crowd said, crucify him. The Jewish law would have had him stoned. Blasphemy, the penalty for blasphemy was to be stoned. But they had to have him put to death a particular way. And that was to be hanging on a tree. And so they appealed unto Caesar, unto Herod and Pilate, that they would have him crucified. Why? Because that was God's predetermined plan. And it must be that the Son of Man would be lifted up. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. That means all of his elect people. And so if the Son, he says, if they had would, if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Does that tell you something? That ought to cause us to stop and think about what's going on. Our Lord is under great anguish. Great, heavy burden, even unto death. There is a struggle going on. Father, be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not thy will, but thy will be done. And he says in another kind, all things are possible with you. The cup. What is that cup? Hebrews chapter 5. The fifth chapter of Hebrews. Paul was writing to us about our great high priest. He tells us something about the qualifications of a priest. No man, verse 4, no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself, he made a high priest, but he that said to him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. He saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God was ordained, Christ was ordained to be a priest before the foundation of the world. That was to be fulfilled and worked out in time. Now here, a lot of things have happened to become, when we come to verse 7. He has been born of the virgin. He has a human body now. And he has the position of being both our redeemer and savior and our high priest. He is the high priest who makes a sacrifice. And he is also the lamb of the sacrifice. In verse 7 of the fifth chapter of Hebrews. When the days of his flesh. Does that ring a bell to you? He's talking about the time where our Lord was here upon the earth. When the days of his flesh, when he was offered up, when he had offered up prayers, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, the word prayer, supplications, is a Greek word which means pleadings. With strong crying, anguish and tears you see the scene Do you get the image this is not just a prayer our lord was a praying man you read in the gospel of luke the sixth chapter that he prayed all night long he taught his disciples to pray he prayed oftentimes but here there is a special agonizing prayer going on when and where is it it's in the garden of gethsemane We've just read about it. Our Lord is in anguish. What is the anguish? There is a cup that he's begging, 
praying to the Father that he will be delivered from it. What is that cup? I believe it is the cup. Let me read a little bit farther first. With stone crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. The Lord was not trying to avoid the cross nor dying because he had agreed to that. That was part of the Father's will that he came to do. I come to do not my will, but the will of him that sent me. And he was looking to go to the cross with joy in his heart. Why? Because he knew the end results of it. He knew that he would accomplish the Father's will. He knew that he would bring about the salvation of all of God's elect people. And so Paul says in Hebrews 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So he's not shunning away from the cross. But there is a death here. Satan is trying to prevent our Lord from going to the cross by causing him to die under some great anguish or something. It's a mystery. There was a war going on, a spiritual war between Satan and our Savior. And it involves his body. If, the, if Satan can cause his body to be died, put to death, we are without a redeemer. Now note what it says here in verse 7. Was able to save him from death and was heard. Hallelujah. He said on another occasion, Father, I thank you that you always hear me. And he was heard. Now note this phrase, in that he feared. Now some people think that that was because he feared what was about to happen. No, the word is reverenced. He esteemed the Father. Father, if it be thy will, nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done. Here is a great conflict going on in the very life of our Savior between divine sovereignty and human submission. That's a problem you and I have to deal with. It's always. The nature of Christianity is submission. It's a hard thing to do. We always want to do our will. There are two wills in life. You always have to deal with them. Young people know this. It's my will and your will. My will is God's will. God's will or your will. My will or your will. As you grow in your Christian life, you'll learn that that's a struggle always. The flesh is willing. The spirit is willing, but the flesh... The, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is... How did I get that wrong? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I got it right that time. <clears throat> My deacons sometimes will help me out when I get tongue twister. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You make resolution. You resolve. You want to do things. You want to be a better Christian. You want to pray more. Read your word of God more. Those things the preachers preach about and you know the heart, your heart tells you you ought to be doing it. Yeah, yes, yes. And so that's God's ordained plan for you as a Christian, as a child of God, that we would live certain kinds of, but our flesh wars against. And there's a fine line between sovereignty and human responsibility. And responsibility must yield itself to the will of God. And say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. You must help me. You must enable me. The Lord said in Ezekiel, he said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my paths. 
The hardest thing in the world for a child of God to do is to be submissive to the will of God in all things. Our Lord here, as a human being, is dealing with that very issue from the human aspect. Not that he is a sinful being. He is without any sin. He is totally in submission to the will. But Satan is warring with him and within his spirit. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. And there is a attempt by the devil, I believe, to prevent our Lord from going to the cross. Now, this is not an original idea with me. I must confess. I'm not trying to pawn something off new on you as being original. Dr. Gill has a very good exposition on that very subject that I'm talking to you about. And you can read him, but you can also read the scriptures. And I believe that the scriptures support what Dr. Gill was setting forth, this conflict. Now, if our Lord doesn't go to the cross, you and I are without a Savior. The body of Jesus Christ is essential to him making a sufficient, proper, and appropriate and satisfying sacrifice for the sins of his people. The body of Christ must be put to death. Father, in thy hands I dismiss my spirit. And they take his body and put it into a grave. But a body came forth from the grave, resurrected body. And he, that resurrected body proves to us, you and I, that of our own resurrection. For he is the first fruits of it. But there are some things to be learned here. We're not told this in all four of the apostles or all four of the gospels. We're not told about this just to fill up the pages. We have an accurate record confirmed by no less than three of the apostles exact details that our Lord prayed three times over this matter. Why? Well, the Lord is teaching us about the responsibility and the mode of Christian growth. There's all of us, we wished in a way that God had just punched a hole in our head, you know, and poured in all this spiritual truth to us, and we could just sprout out all overnight and say, oh, man, we're just mature, great growth, especially us preachers. But what does the Word of God tell his ministers? Study study oh we have the Holy Spirit we've got the word of God but we have to study study the apostles said this is the reason why we should appoint deacons it's not proper that we should leave leave the tables serve tables we will give ourselves to prayer and study the word of God and so they appointed deacons to take over some responsibilities from them to relieve them of some responsibilities That responsibility does not just apply to ministers. All of God's people are to study. To study to show yourself or to be approved unto God. We are all ordained workmen. We are his creation. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works that any should boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Unto good works. With God before ordained that we shall walk in them. Okay. I get it. All right. I'm supposed to live a Christian life. All right, God, you get me going. Wind me up and turn me loose. 
It doesn't work that way. 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, By the grace of God, I am that I am. <laughs> now, wait a minute. What kind of portion is that? Well, the grace of God is that which God imparts to us for Christ's sake. And Paul says, by the grace of God, I am that I am. And he says, his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But note what he says. His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. <clears throat> there's a jug, there's a bottle of medicine sitting on the medicine cabinet shelf. And the doctor has prescribed it for your problem, whatever that problem is. And you leave it sitting up there and you go back a month later and the doctor says, well, how are you feeling? Well, not very good, doc. Not at all. I'm still having the same problem. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you been taking the medicine? Uh, well, I got it. I bought it. Where is it? It's on the shelf. How much have you taken? I haven't taken any of it. Are you still having the same problem? Yes, but no wonder. You haven't done what I told you. You haven't taken the medicine. That won't work, will it, doc? That's the way we as Christians kind of go through the Christian life. God has given us a medicine box. He has given us the Holy Spirit. He's the physician. And the word of God becomes a closed book to us. Stays a closed book for most of the time. We get it down on Sunday morning when we're going to church maybe. Oh, once through the week we'll pick it up and read some of it. But we don't study. Show ourselves approved unto God. I used to teach school a little bit. I always tell people I was outstanding in, in college. When college was going on, I was outside standing. <clears throat> I've been exposed to higher education. You note that. I've been exposed to higher education, but it didn't take. <clears throat> but one thing I did learn. You're not going to learn algebra or geometry or history but just looking at the book no matter how much you like the cover on the book how much you highly esteem the book if you don't study the book you won't pass the course in the subject this is God's book study this is God's book of prescriptions God's books of instructions how you were to live as God's people how husbands are to live, how wives and mothers are to be, how children are to be, how we're to live in our employment job, how we're to everything all about our lives. Here's God's manual for us. Like all of us, most of us men, we never open the book, the manual up book. You know, we can put that bicycle together by ourselves. Why, well, yeah, I can do that. And then we get the front wheel on the back side and the back side wheel on the front side. And we wonder why they can't be ridden that way. study and I'm just using that to illustrate what I'm talking about the grace of God God's grace is a prescription an empowerment an ability that's what Paul is talking about here by the grace of God I am what I am many many years ago young boy I never was very big stout strong Y'all today don't understand what this was, but there was a, on the back of magazine, on the back of comic books, there was a, 
always advertising about Charles Atlas. Big, man, you know. And you can take and get, get his manual and you could become <clears throat> big Charles Atlas. I got it one time, ordered it off. I think it cost every bit of a dollar. I didn't make it because I didn't follow the manual. I don't know if that would work anyway, but anyway, I didn't follow it. It's God's manual. By the grace of God that I am, I am that I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But what? But what? Now, wait a minute, preacher. Don't get into this work stuff. But I labored. Christian growth is a product of laboring with God, before God, prayer, study, maturing as a God's. I've been obsessed lately with a phrase that, bless his heart, James Taylor first exposed me to. And that's in the 16th chapter of the book of Romans and verse 26. Brother James, many years ago, was preaching at our church down in Aberdeen. And uh, he made a reference to that verse of Scripture. And in that verse of Scripture, there is a phrase which says something that really grabbed me. But I, I just never did follow up on it. The 16th chapter of Romans, and I'm reading verse 26. Here's what it says. <clears throat> Verse 26, but now is made manifest by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known unto all nations for the obedience of faith. You know why God gave this book? You know why the Holy Spirit of God moved holy men to write this book? Do you know why God preserved this book? Do you know why in spite of all that the devil has done, all that the devil has done to try and destroy this book, that you have this book in your language, that you can read it, we can read it. That you might come to the obedience of faith. I'll pick on Jeff. He's a doctor. He went to doctor school. He went to medical school first. He first of all had to pass all of his courses. I know a little bit about him. All with Straight A's. <clears throat> I got straight A's, you know, they had one side left out. But <clears throat> he got it all with straight A's, medical school, doctor. He didn't just pick up the manual and look at it and say, that's a good book, and lay it down the side. He put it, what the book said, he had to put it into practice. And you, know, and you wanted him to do that. And you wanted somebody else to check on him to be sure he got it done right. You know, it used to be saying that doctors are practicing medicine, but anymore they don't practice. They just do it, you know, whether they get practice or not. But anyway, the obedience of faith. That word is used over the first chapter of Romans also, and that's the reason why I got stirred just recently about it. I'm preaching through the book of Romans, and the first chapter of Romans, in verse 5, it says this, By whom we receive grace and apostleship, Paul is writing to the saints at Rome and he's saying, I have received grace and an apostleship. I'm called to be an apostle. For what reason, Paul? For the obedience of the faith. Does that ring a bell? 
that the light go on? This book is about the faith. And it's God's program that God's people would come conform to this book. To the obedience of the faith. But there's something that works in opposition to that. It's human nature. We're busy. We're reluctant. We plan to. We procrastinate. It's for somebody else. Now I move on quickly. Three times our Lord prayed over this. It talks about perseverance. The 11th chapter of Luke, our Lord tells about, he says about a woman that, I'm reading the 11th chapter of Romans, 11th chapter of Luke. Uh, Verse 5, I'll start. Which of you shall have a friend and shall go to him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves and four For a friend of mine is in a journey and come to me and I have nothing to set before him. He from within shall answer and say, trouble me not. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. Now that's logical. You know, somebody comes knocking the door at one o'clock in the morning and say, I need some loaf of bread. You should have got it before storage locked down. Verse eight. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give it. Because he is a friend, even though he's a friend, I won't get it. Yet because of his importunity, that means persistence, persistence, aggravating persistence. That's what it means. Because of his importunity, he will arise and give him as many as he needeth. Now note the context. Why did the Lord give that illustration? Verse 9. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. And knock, and it shall be opened to you. Three things. Ask, seek, and knock. Ask, politely asking. Seek, trying to find the doorknob. And when the door is locked, then you begin to knock on it. Persistence, persevering, pursuing, conformity to the word of God, to the obedience of faith. Our Lord persevered in praying three times for you that the Father would enable him to give him strength to go to the cross to die for you. Back to Luke 22nd chapter. I missed this verse a moment ago. Luke the 22nd chapter. I'm back to ver- there, verse 22. <clears throat> Saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now, verse 43. Listen to this, because Luke's the only one that tells us this. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven. What? No, you're not. I could call legions of angels, but this angel comes not to the to deliver him, but to strengthen him. To strengthen him. Why? 
Because he is being pressed down. He is in his human body. He became tired. He became weary. He is, he thirsted. All of those things. He has a human body. And he becomes pressed down. And Satan is trying to kill him. I don't know exactly what a heart attack, stress. I don't know those things. It's a marvelous, sick mystery. But Satan is working to prevent him from going to the cross. Let this cup pass from me. And an angel comes and strengthens him. What does he do? Quit praying. Look at next verse. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat, as it were, were drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, it's not blood. It's not blood. There's no redemption here. The redemption's at the cross. It's, his blood becomes thick like I mean, his sweat become thick like drops of blood. That's what's going on. Why? Because of the stress and the agony that he is going through to prevail to go to the cross for you and I. Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. It, it may be but a bruised heel, but it affects his whole body. And Satan is trying to prevent him from going to the cross. Persevering. Second thing to learn is his great love for you and I. The cross this is the triumphant trophy of God's love and God's grace toward his people. And the Savior here is praying that the Father would strengthen him and enable him that he would be able to go to the cross as a demonstration of his love and mercy toward his people. It is also a demonstration of the terrible nature of sin. All the cross demonstrates God's judgment against sin the awful consequences of sin. But who is this that's going through such anguish? Why, it's the Son of God. What has he done for these three and a half years, or 33 and a half years they've been here on earth? Nothing but good. Teaching the word of God, preaching, healing people. And why is it that Satan is doing this? Because that's his nature. He is but a roaring lion. He is a liar and a murderer, the Lord said from the very beginning. This is the nature of sin. How awful. What awful acts people do because of sin. Abortion is a terrible act of cruelty. A mother to kill her baby while it's yet in the womb. We saw on the news the other day about someone left a little baby down by trash dump in Marshall County. Why? What did that little baby do? It's just sin. The sinful nature of mankind. Why would a person kill another person? Why will friends kill friends? So-called friends. Because of sin. Why do parents, husbands and wives kill each other? Why do children kill their parents? Parents kill their children. Why? What's going on in the world? All the anguish and pain and sorrow is because of sin. And our Savior is manifesting what the nature of sin is. 
It brings anguish, sorrow, and grief. The wages of sin is death. No matter what kind of robe the devil puts on sin, it's when the robe is removed, it's an ugly garment. However you decorate the cake, it's got poison in it. Sin does. Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. That I may be faithful to go to the cross and, and die for Herb Hatfield. That I might be faithful to go to the cross and die for the people that you gave me. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and I've kept them, and none is lost except the son of perdition. That's what he prayed in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. I pray that they may be one as we are one. I pray that they may behold my glory that I had with thee before the world was. That was the Father, that was the Son's prayer for you and I. And the devil is trying to prevent that from happening. The devil is trying to ruin all of our lives. All of us. Destroy our lives. One way or the other. But by sin. By recklessness. Drugs. Carelessness. Falling into false doctrines and teachings. Just trying to mess us up. But the Savior prayed. He said. Keep them. From the wicked one. The evil one. And he will. Because the father heard his prayer. And Christ went to the cross. And he died on the cross. For the sins of his people. And every one of those for whom he died for. Shall be with him for all eternity. So Paul says. The grace that was bestowed upon me. Was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I. But the grace of God in me. Why did Paul labor so much for Christ? God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Calvary, cross of Christ, by which the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. God bless you.